You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today we're speaking to writer Wale Shoyinka about the themes of his new novel, Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth. Here's Dr. Luisa Egbenika with more. I'm delighted to have with me Professor Wale Shoyinka, Nigerian author, playwright, poet, and political activist. He is Africa's first Nobel laureate in literature. His prolific work, body of work includes his debut novel, The Interpreters, and his play, Death and the King's Horseman. Shoyinka has been one of the greatest critics of the Nigerian government and a staunch critic of corruption, authoritarian regimes everywhere. His latest publication is a novel, Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth. So, okay, so, so to begin with our conversation, first of all, it's such an honour to be able to discuss your latest novel with you, Professor Shoyinka. And I thought maybe I'd pick up the idea of your work becoming, or this novel becoming increasingly notorious in Nigeria. Can you maybe speak to the reception uh, so far in Nigeria and, and, uh, and, and where does this potential notoriety come from? It's been quite a bit of a surprise, a pleasant one for me, by the way, that some of the uh, greatest enthusiasts of this work have been politicians, believe it or not, including, including, let me emphasize, one or two who understand, accept the fact that uh, they have formed the basis of uh, a couple of the characters in the novel. I can tell you, for instance, that when we launched the work in Abuja, the capital, there were a couple of politicians there who recognized themselves in it. One of them even asked questions from the floor and uh, then came up afterwards. As they came up to me, I said, before you say anything, I hope you're aware that I base this particular character on you. And he's not uh, one of the most, uh, shall we say, salubrious characters in the play. And he said, oh, I know, I know that, I know that. But I still want to ask my question. I didn't quite receive an answer earlier. And we chatted for quite a while. And I know that a number of them have bought several copies for their friends, which they've distributed. And uh, in fact, one has made it a policy of making it part of his, uh, he works for the government as a politician, is, and he's made it a point of duty of placing it in the, uh, you know, we have this distribution, what do you call them, bumper baskets or hamper, hampers, you know, putting this a copy of this book in his cabinet hamper. Now, that really is, I think, something to crow about. And that, that's really interesting, given that your, you know, your, your work is in part satire, but it's quite critical of, of you know, people of power, whether they're politicians, whether they're uh, leaders of, of different faiths, of different religions. It's, it's, very, it's a very critical look at um, abuses of power. So why do you think that those who have informed your characters, those who you've sort of uh, based your characters on, are so receptive to it and actually are sort of championing it? Let me tell you a suspicion that came to me quite recently, not from the very beginning. You omitted a section of the, of the nation, of the populace, I believe, I hope I addressed successfully, and that's the people themselves, what they have allowed themselves to become. So it is possible that it is not such a virtuous toleration temperament tolerance uh, temperament that, uh, that made these politicians 
patronize or at least uh, accept the book. But I think for the first time, maybe that they see themselves as part of the rest of the populace and the populace are simply being an extension of themselves. So I suspect that they are happy that the people who criticize them normally are also getting it in the neck. Because uh, I hope I succeeded, I think I did, in addressing us, myself included, among the rest, saying that, listen, look at what you've become. Look at what you've allowed yourself to become. Look at what you've accepted, you're now accepting as a norm. So it could also be part of that. But finally, as a writer, I hope they simply think it's a good read. But that's flattering myself. It, it is a good read, but it's, it's also a very complex and layered novel. And one of the things that I was really taken by was the ability to weave in so much of Nigeria's history, at times in passing, at times references to things that have happened, but it pre- presents a really rich portrait of, of different aspects of, of the nation. And I think it really shows that these are issues that have been on your mind for some time because it, it creates this kind of tapestry of, of different historical moments, even though it's largely said in the contemporary. And I'm just thinking about, for example, references to, you know, from, from Big Brother Africa to the Nigeria, the Nigeria Biafra Civil War to Boko Haram, being able to try and capture uh, these very different elements of, of, of society. And one of the things that did strike me was as you kind of chart in a way that the nation's progress or in some sense lack of progress in certain areas. One of the things that seems to be prevalent is this presence of violence throughout. So again, I mentioned you referenced the Nigeria Biafra war, you mentioned the violence of, of Boko Haram, you mentioned sort of ritual killings, you mentioned violence against women and children. So I wondered if you could speak to that, that I guess these problems that have existed in Nigeria since you know the colonial era and colonial violence and that have somewhat mutated and evolved and changed into something that's in some sense familiar and resonates with kind of whether it's the divide and root policies and the violence that we saw during the colonial era to something quite different now with say Boko Haram the violence against you know civilians uh, through Boko Haram's sort of murderous exploits to also end SARS you know and the the, the, the killing of civilians through that so just that kind of arc of, of violence throughout Nigeria's history. Yeah, two, two expressions from you, which spot on. One, you said, been on your mind for some time. Quite right. Been on my mind for a couple of decades. Then the other word which struck me, mutate. Absolutely right. There's no society without violence. And uh, certainly not one which has been through a civil war. But the nature of the violence, you're absolutely right, has mutated into almost, one could even speak about the mutation of humanity itself. And also the ability to continue to absorb this level of mutation, this, uh, this failure to demonstrate, not merely by words, but by action, that this has gone beyond what you might call the acceptable level of violence, especially among the people themselves. I mean, we've gone beyond Fanon's well-observed theory of the violence of the oppressed, that very often the oppressed turn 
inwards into themselves and inflict greater violence on their own kind than they, they even think of inflicting on the state. This has gone beyond that. It's reached a level where I believe the people themselves should begin to ask questions and, and demand very rigorous answers beyond rhetoric, action, saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not we, the adults. This is not what we grew up with. This is, this is not the norm. This, this is not even the lowest uh, acceptable level of negative uh, norm that we underwent. Uh, and to say, why are children being turned into pawns of violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're absolutely right. It has been on my mind for decades. And I mean, as somebody who was of the generation that, you know, witnessed Nigeria's independence, somebody who's been writing and has been involved in the creative arts for a number of years and whose work has been very concerned with the question of nation and nationhood, and the, also the personal commitments you've made. I mean, your your imprisonment during the, the Nigeria Biafra War for, for attempting to try and reconcile um, sides as somebody who's very has been very committed to to Nigeria and, and Nigerian nationhood, it also sort of struck me that that this novel was the culmination of both the kind of life of writing, but also what you've witnessed Nigeria go through over the last sort of sixty plus years. And so I just wondered as well, in terms of your own uh, trajectory and, and your own thinking about the nation, from that sense of hopefulness, you know, in the build up to independence, uh, to sort of present day, if you could speak to that. And I, I wanted just to add that one of the, the refrains in the in, in, in your new novel is, is thinking about Independence Day and the celebrations around that and marking, you know, Independence Day. Uh, but then the question is, you know, what are people actually celebrating? What's what's what is actually there? So I, I'd be interested to hear, you know, that sort of mm -hmm. development you've you've had over the years. Yeah, it, it's reached the point for, and this is a very long time ago, but now it's uh, shall we say it's peaked. A condition, an internal condition, also externally expressed a number of times, in which one asks the question: Just what is a nation? When is a nation? What what is it exactly? What are we talking about? If a nation finds that its future is being targeted, you know, by, for instance, the automation, the kidnapping of school children for ransom, what I have termed a new slave trade internally and externally, if a people permit themselves to reach that state of abomination, then what are we talking about? Of, uh, uh, in terms of a nation. And also, what is the relationship, both the obligations towards and expectations from the rest of the world, the rest of other nations? The United Nations, for instance, to which we subscribe. But the now, in the United Nations, even before the United Nations, different nations w woke up, various, various degrees of development, and ask themselves, wait a minute, what is slavery? What is enslavement? Why are we permitting this dehumanization? And you had abolition movements springing up all over the world until the moment when anti-slavery protocols are enshrined in the United Nations Articles of Belonging. And yet, today, what I've termed a resurrection 
of enslavement, of the slave trade is taking place. And we sit, continue to, to parrot this notion of national sovereignty. We, don't, we will not accept any encroachment on our national integrity. What integrity if you're losing your humanity? You are absolutely being subsumed, subsumed under activities which go against the entire family of nations to which you belong. This is why some of us have been demanding, not only from our nation, but from outside governments, international intervention for this new slavery beamed directly at the most vulnerable sections of the nation in which children are being sent to school and then they are kidnapped by this new generation of slavers. We're even making the work easy for them. We don't compel them to go on raids where they can get killed and captured and enslaved in turn. No, they just mobilize go to the nearest school, capture hundreds of children, take them into the forest, and then tell the government, their parents, institutions to which they belong, come and negotiate for their ransom. I mean, what difference is there between that and those centuries of slavery across slave trade, Begapan, across the Sahara, across the Atlantic, and today, when hordes in the name of whatever religion, or simply starkly for money, are capturing our children, enslaving them, and selling them. Selling some of them into sex markets and others into slave markets. In Libya, the markets are there, own officials have been there to rescue, etc., etc. But what pains one most deeply today is that is the vulnerable section of society which is being targeted. I mean, and we continue to talk about national sovereignty, and we know that we have contributed troops to peacekeeping all over the world. And why can we not demand international help? Why is there not today, for instance, a demand by the government for an international child international rescue force, or whatever you call it? Because this is beyond. This is beyond the capacity of one government assailed from all sectors by this pernicious development. It's not only Nigeria that is going on, but we are at the center of this abominable uh, development. So the issue of what is nation has become paramount to my thinking. What I don't even want to hear the expression national sovereignty anymore. I don't want to hear the expression national integrity anymore. If you cannot ensure the dignity of your people, especially the most vulnerable section. So you're quite right. Uh, there are issues which from it go to the very basis of what is human. What is human today? Thank you. And, and just going back to that idea of enslavement, I mean, one of the other strong themes in this novel is about the grip that some unscrupulous religious leaders have over people. I mean, Nigeria is a country where people, many people are, are, are having quite a tough time. And there's almost like a, um, a trading in hope. You know, people are buying into religion in, in the hope that even if 
even and some of your characters, you know, even if they're a bit unsure about the powers of some of these leaders, it's the need to have hope that they, you know, place their their trust and their funds into, and that that that's you know that's that's quite strongly captured in in this novel. I wonder if you can speak to that the the hold that uh, that religion has over many of, of many people in Nigeria, but particularly those unscrupulous religious leaders who exploit people knowing how vulnerable they are. Yes, first of all, uh, I've been accused quite rightly of being against religion. I have developed, you know, uh, a great antipathy that the confessor right away to religion. And yet, at the same time, I should be at least credited go on record uh, as admitting the fact that religion has played a very positive role in the lives of many communities, many societies. Take a country like the United States and the condition of slaves in uh, maybe total degradation of their humanity. It is very often religion which gives them the hope, that word, the confidence that sooner or later, if only they hung on to this thread, of the of the supernatural that they also will experience liberation not merely spiritual liberation but physical social economic liberation you look at what the religion did for the blacks in prisons in the in in america united states who found uh, such strength in the nation of islam and uh, turned their back on other religions like christianity and became found recovered their dignity through that religion, Islam, which, however, is being totally degraded, debased, and discredited by extreme cultic, almost cultic variations of that religion. And you find the same thing in Christianity. Look at Joseph Kony, the that uh, barbarian who captures children, you no, know, totally turns them against even the basic values in which they've been brought up, who slices of lips, noses, for those who do not accept his own brand of Christianity. I don't even know what's happened to him. Has he been captured? Has he been bitten to death by a snake in one of those uh, jungles over there? It saved humanity the trouble of tracking him down. But all over the place, that's really what I'm getting at. All over the place, I find that religion has been cosseted too much. And liberties have been taken by religionists, which would not be considered to other movements which are considered secularist. It's as if the moment you put on a garb of a, a religious leader, you can close up the expressway between Lagos and the rest of the, uh, of the nation simply because you're having a religious celebration. You're just a fraction of the rest of the nation, and you should be accorded no special privileges. So until that is done, People will always find there's something extra by belonging and being and manifesting, even to an extreme extent, your religious uh, uh, adhesions. Religion has become the number one problem for Nigerians. Hope is all very well, but hope itself can become putrid, especially if it's hope for unearned uh, advantages in society. If religion becomes an excuse for flouting the law, then that religion has got to be tackled head on. 
If, for instance, uh, a legislator, and I've used this example so often, I'm tired of it, but I will continue to use it. If a legislator, later a governor, can claim the right to be a pedophile and indulge in cross-border child trafficking, celebrating child marriage, consuming or consummating, I beg your pardon, that, you know, that uh, event which is against the law of the nation, and he says he has the right to do it because his religion permits it, then both he and that religion should just be shown the way to the law courts. I'm treated just like um, other phenomena of society and other individuals of society. If you can use religion to excuse building a, a church which collapses on the heads of humanity, Many of them, in fact, not from Nigeria, several from South Africa. I'm talking about this uh, tabernacle of the late, uh, what's his name, Joshua, whatever. And then you say that uh, it was caused by supernatural forces, where you know very well that you flouted the conditions for increasing the floors of your building. So this, this is what has become the daily reality of Nigeria. And so religion has got to be put in its place in order for people to be liberated as rational beings, beings of volition, who can tackle the problems of existence in a rational, collective way, rather than by insisting that it's only along one route that society can be transformed. Take your religion, practice it at home, collect around you, anybody you want for collective celebrations of religious season, uh, seasons. Nobody quarrels with that. But when you use religion to subvert the rights of others, even to the extent of claiming the right to kill, by, and not just singly, but collectively, to burn down the places of worship of others in the name of your religion, then it's about time we treated religion as a crime against humanity. It's reached that level in societies like Nigeria. And one thing that also struck me, just thinking about your protagonists, is that it seems like the, the people of conscience, the people who try to do what they believe to be right, the people that try to follow their moral compass, are the ones that particularly struggle in Nigeria, or it, it, life becomes more difficult to navigate, it becomes treacherous, uh, whereas those who are willing to bend to, and, and mould themselves and shift to, you know, the, the ills of society are far more successful. And it, it made me think about your own experience and having to spend time in exile for being outspoken, for being a critic of uh, various regimes. I wonder if you can speak to that. How, how does one exist in Nigeria in a way that, you know, to be vocal, to be able to be outspoken, but to still navigate that maze, that challenge? Well, I think one of the ways in which one can keep one's quote-unquote faith, <laughs> at least in one's beliefs, is by focusing from time to time on the positive majority. Uh, not just the minority. We there seem to be a minority because it's always a minority whose voices are often heard. But if you move in the marketplaces, in the factories, in the streets, you know that the majority 
actually do not accept the situation. Their relationship with you, the way they talk to you, the way they treat you, even when they're in the security services. Some of us, I'll tell you frankly, all are very alive to those in the security agencies who were sent to eliminate us. Uh, take whatever period you want. Our friends within the military, not just friends, but very close admirers, our friends within the police, the various arms of the Secret Service, they come to me, they speak to me, I'm almost like a, a father confessor to many of them. So, <laughs> yes, I think it is that which actually nerves one to continue, that you feel you cannot let them down if you cannot abandon them. And that applies also to a number of others, some of them even journalists who relate to them perhaps even more closely than I do. Uh, you'll notice, and then some of them, as I said, are even among the state. They are agencies, they are agents of the state, their whole positions in the state. It's one of the reasons why I dedicated uh, the, the work to two people at least, one of whom was uh, uh, an investigative reporter who was blown up, Delegiwa. The other was also, both of them were my personal friends. The other was uh, Bolaige. He was not just a politician, but uh, he was the nation's attorney general and minister of justice. And he was cut down in cold blood in his own bedroom after his security detail was, you know, just maneuvered out of, of, uh, of, of his own. And then he was just gunned down until today. Till today, those remain among the hundreds of unsolved political murders. So I think it's that sense of being made aware periodically, continuously also, that you're, you're not really alone, even if it appears that it's just yours and the, vo and the voices of the rest of the quote-unquote minority which are being heard. And you feel from time to time that you cannot leave this collective heritage to the barbarians, to the cynics, the manipulators, the opportunists, you know, those who absolutely are so solipsistic that they see the nation only as a reflection of themselves, as their own personal property, who totally lack scruples, who do not hesitate. And this applies to those who are not even in government, who do not hesitate to butcher other beings or to even hand over, betray their fellow beings among the hoi polloi simply in order to make rituals to enrich themselves. This is, for me, the unkindest cut of all. And this has become a continuous thing. It's no longer an aberration, an incident here that make people shudder and stay home for a couple of days. No, everybody now is endangered. If you wanted, I could go into recent cases of, you know, of killings, ritual killings, in which the corpses have been found, disemboweled, vital organs. I mean, this did not happen when I was growing up. 
and I find it impossible to accept that this was what I was born into, to be part of such a community. That is the problem. I mean, this novel does feel, I don't know if you'll agree with this term, but this novel does feel in part like a kind of soul-searching for the nation. And one of the things that also struck me, as I mentioned before, the kind of layered references and the ability to condense a lot of history, and of course this is a fictional you know, work, but to condense a lot of the history into, into this text. And it, it did make me think about memory in Nigeria, collective memory, national, the memory of the nation, particularly in terms of some of its more unsettling and troubling histories. And I'm thinking about, for example, the Nigeria-Biafra war. I don't know how, for example, Boko Haram will be remembered in the future, but it did feel like a, an element of documenting. And again, it's a fictional work, but it did feel like a documenting of that history and committing things to memory and, and forcing, you know, uh, forcing a nation to also take a look at itself and, and what it's become and how it's progressed. I wonder if you can say something about Nigeria and the way in which it remembers or doesn't remember and the way in which certain problems from the past might repeat themselves because of this lack of, of real reflection and introspection. Yes, and this, yes, um, you, you put your finger on something else. I've said it again and again. There's something peculiar about Nigeria in relation to memory. It's as if memory is a kind of disjunction. Uh, let, me, let me reveal to you, for instance, that my first collection of essays came out eventually under a different title was, uh, I think it was Memory and, Am and Amnesia, which could be uh, an encapsulation of the dilemma of Nigerian society. People refer occasionally to the Biafran War, for instance, but there's a failure to connect what led to the Biafran War and how that war has left its impact on the present. There's, there's a failure to see a relationship. And I say this not merely in relation to the federal side, but even to the Biafran side. On the Biafran side, for instance, there are many who have picked up the wrong lessons from the, from the war itself, and who refuse, who deliberately refuse to accept some of the lead-up events to the Biafran war. Uh, this, is not, this has nothing to do with whether you are a pro-Biafran or a pro-federalist. No, no, no. I'm talking about, for instance, the, uh, the consequences of the war uh, the, and also the very uh, absolutely right effort of Biafrans to reintegrate themselves into society, into the larger society, or are their choice to move out. For me, there's nothing wrong with either side, with either position, as long as there's a kind of logic to it. To be able to say, listen, what we fought for at the time is still with us. We must continue to fight for what we, lived, we believed in, but we must also leave open the possibilities of other means of achieving the same targets on behalf of our people, correct? Or, and I, for me, my position regarding nations is very clear, I've made it clear very often, that people have a right anytime to say, we want our own autonomy. 
we we believe that we are being impeded. Our progress is being impeded by belonging to this larger community. But they must argue their case and proceed with that in a way that does not make us repeat the errors of the war that we underwent, which cost us about, at a modest estimate, two million plus people, and which has created till today the distrust and animity, and, um, enmity between the various parts of the nation. We need to go back to the drawing board. We need to go back to what, how we became a nation in the first place, to ask whose will we are maintaining, sustaining, by remaining one nation, or whose will we are about to execute by pulling apart in multiple directions. I, I just like a rational proceeding, that's all. One that begins with a right to self-determination of any people anywhere in the world. A proceeding which does not say that we are subhuman when we see examples in other societies, whether call it the Soviet Union, call it within Africa, Eritrea, Ethiopia, call it Britain, uh, where till tomorrow, the Scottish are still asking for their own independence, the Irish have not given them up. And so who are we to say, let us kill one another, simply because one section says, we want to leave. I don't accept that. Uh, and uh, well, when I hear language like, uh, I give my blood uh, to give uh, to keep Nigeria together, and I'm ready to spill it again, well, it's like, well, spill it in your village. Don't bring it to the, to the national desk. We must speak as equal human beings, as equal communities, and stop pretending there's something special about us, about any section of our society. So I forgot what started this peroration. Uh, but anyway, I hope I give you, you the answer. <laughs> Thank you, you did. You did, you did. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I'm going to now just turn to some of the questions that have come in through the audience and I might group a couple together. So there's one that asks, what advice do you have to young Nigerians born into a terribly broken country and have never really experienced the hope that was present 
in the dawn of independence. And I'm just going to couple that with another one that asks about your perspective on the NSARS movement, because I think it, those two complement each other. So the NSARS movement that rose up last year in the wake of Black Lives Matter, how effective do you think that it will be in terms of promoting lasting political and social change in Nigeria? Yeah, well, the two questions are rightly joined, I think. <clears throat> NSARS was the beginning of hope, or shall we say a renewal of hope. I saw the young generation finally doing what they're supposed to have been doing for decades, not sitting down and being crybabies and whining or and or saying, let's join them. If we can't beat them, let's join them. Let's get a slice of the action, no matter what cost it is. We actually saw the young generation taking their destiny in their own hands and at great cost. It, it was evidence of their capacity to organize uh, a recognition of a watershed in their lives uh, and a seizure of a moment at a critical moment when to wait any longer would have been to admit, to accept the status of slavery to a wasted generation uh, and to their whims and their own priorities. So it was a great movement, no question at all about that. Unfortunately, it was betrayed. It was betrayed also by infiltration by state agencies, but ultimately it was betrayed by the people themselves. Uh, they allowed themselves to be bought. And in any case, it was an opportunity for them to manifest their own proclivities for chaos, for opportunism, for predatoriness. They turned predatory on themselves, on one another, and they destroyed or at least emasculated that movement. Now, they ask, the question is asked, what should we do, we who never did not belong to a generation that had experienced, as we say in Nigeria, better. All right. They say, what do we do? Well, my answer is just organize. Organize again, reorganize along the, uh, the lines of NSARS. This time, profit from the lessons of certain loopholes which had been left in the organizing. Uh, I think they underestimated also the... Um, the deviousness of state and its capacity to infiltrate. I think this should be corrected. But above all, I hesitate to say this, those who are outside, return. Now, I don't say return altogether or physically. I've made that mistake before in which I've enticed people back, said, come back. You know, uproot, just come. Let's build it together. They came, within weeks they'd had it, and they went back. And some of them turned their backs on Nigeria permanently. But there are those who continue to live, to exist, to create and be productive, one leg outside, one leg in. These ones were, in fact, the spearheads of NSAR's movement, very much so. Collecting money, creating networks, integrating themselves 
as far as possible within the creative structure within the nation, the unofficial or even the official, the state or non-state, whatever form. It takes various forms. I, I know, for instance, associations of doctors who come home every year, if only for one month, operating, you know, emergency operations all over the country, and then they, well, they go back and so on. So by keeping that contact, studying the weak points of the state, assessing the strengths of the state, and knowing where to strike effectively, creatively, and collectively at the right moments, I think they will begin to recover that nation for themselves, for their own future, which is what we're talking about. Thank you. Um, and then another question that's come in concerns the digital and how that affects nationhood. So it says, in an increasingly digital and fragmenting world, does the concept of nationhood work for Nigeria that is made up of so many cultures, ethnicities and languages? Well, my positive answer to that is, what is wrong with a variegated nation? What is wrong with that? To be able to move from... Uh, culture, to Yoruba culture, to Shekiri culture, to Bia Igbo culture, to Fulani culture. What, what greater gift could one have to people who are genuinely creative and who are constantly looking for the, the, very, the, the very nation of existence to be productive? Culture is not just uh, the humanities. Culture is also physical, material productivity, whether you're talking about agriculture, like systems, et cetera, et cetera. So nothing wrong, basically. But where something is not clearly not working, where humanity is not being served, I go back on my record of saying, my slogan, let nations die, that humanity may survive. And our next question is asking for some advice. How would you advise any young Nigerian person who wants to go into politics and make a positive change? All right. My answer to that it would be from example. I met uh, President Lula, ex-President Lula of um, Brazil when he came to Nigeria once. In fact, he uh, invited me to have a chat with him at his hotel where we're staying. We had a very long chat and I asked him the question, how did you do it? He was a trade unionist. He was a virtual unknown. And he said, what I did was I printed lots and lots of leaflets and I stood at street corners and I would distribute the leaflets to motorists, to workers, you know, people going to work, markets, etc." My name is Lula. This is my manifesto. I want to become the next president of this nation. That is one way of going about it. It requires, as I, as I told some of uh, my acolytes when we once tried to start a political party, I said, you will ride bicycles, you will ride horses, you will ride donkeys, you will walk. You cannot just stay in one place and think that by going on the radio from time to time or intervening in some public uh, event from time to time, you will make it. You will transform that society through, actually, political power. 
you have to walk. Others have a war chest which you cannot beat. And so you've got to find other methods. You've got to go to the marketplaces. You've got to talk to parents. I mean, we saw what happened in the United States before Obama became president. I watched, I was teaching all over uh, universities in the United States, and I saw the transformation of thinking. I saw what the youths did, how they converted their parents, how their parents then became mechanisms for converting their friends. I saw students sleeping on the floor in makeshift offices for the Obama campaign. And I said to people, we're watching a transformation in thinking of a once slaving nation, of a once uh, uh, racist nation, of a capitalist, ruthlessly capitalist society. So something is going on here. And I watched, I spoke to those children, I said, the United States and the world are about to have a surprise. And that's exactly what happened. Yes, outside you must build up a small capital, even paper costs money in this digital age. You still have to pay for paper. So don't get, let's get too romantic. You know, you must build up a small capital, but it needn't be huge. It needn't be a level of expectations. Let me quickly tell you an amazing, a chastening story about when I tried to gather the young people together to, uh, and also some, some technocrats and uh, professionals to form a political party. And uh, these things were going on quite well. Not for myself, you know, just to give them a platform using my name and my, um, you know, whatever little clout I had. And uh, the day I moved out, what happened was this. When I said, over to you, it's all yours, I'm out. At a meeting, some people came. They came from the east, they came from the north. And uh, we thought we had a good gathering. Until I discovered that one item on the agenda, on the, on the program, which somebody had put there, because that's what he believed, and he was actually in the executive, was uh, distribution of cash. I didn't see that program. <laughs> At least that wasn't what I saw to begin with, the draft which I gave them. And so one person actually came with two bodyguards to come and carry cash to go back to his constituency. That was the day when I said, oh, wait a minute. This thing has got to be tackled a different way. First, you've got to change people's orientation. I mean, this is somebody totally new to the party. And it came with two bodyguards to carry away cash because it been made to believe that the purpose of the meeting was to distribute cash. I had my contribution to the purse, which I told them was all I had, I think was less than about $500. Because I said, that's all I have. Now you have to raise. This is, I'm willing to expend this because that's all I can spare. But the rest has got to be legwork, heavy work. You're ready to do it, you stay. Otherwise, please go to the existing parties. So that's one way to go about it. There'll be other ways, but that's all I can offer you in advice, as advice. Thank you. That's very helpful advice. So this question, I suppose, thinks through your positioning as a writer, but also as a public intellectual and critic. And so it asks, in an increasingly dangerous political time, what role does literature play? 
well, literature as a as a as a as an occupation of course is a work in progress. But once you've done with chronicles, it's too late. There's nothing else you can do except try and propagate what is inside in other ways. So it's a continuum. It's a work in progress in that session. A nation, however, is very much a work in progress. I don't care whether you're talking about uh, the so-called developed uh, states, the Scandinavian countries. China is very much a work in progress. The United States, if it didn't know it before, when Trump came on the scene, I hope the United States now realizes that it's still a work in progress. So the two, in many ways, are very much alive, uh, uh, very much alike. And if you take any work of literature, you can virtually open any page, and there's something in there that can be used one way or the other in nation formulation. So it's very much like the state work in progress, and they can influence each other. If I sometimes use the analogy of, uh, of the bureaucratic desk, uh, where you have a tray which is in and a tray which is out. And then in the middle, there is one which is keep in view. I don't know whether they still have those, but we used to have them in Nigerian offices. Keep in view. And so literature is very much like that. No matter how ancient, no matter seemingly, how seemingly antiquated, no matter how ideologically neutral or ideologically saturated to the point of agitprop and propaganda, literature is something to be kept in view, constantly referred to and related to whatever circumstances, not just as a work of vision, but very directly related to what can uh, be done to adjust uh, inequities or irregularities within nation. Let's not fool ourselves. Uh, writers, poets are not really the unacknowledged, quote-unquote, legislators of the world. But sometimes they prove to be, never forget that. And I can cite numerous examples, but we don't want to uh, waste too much time on that. That's just got me thinking about um, how you approach your writing, because I think very much it is part of that engagement with what has happened or Nigeria's realities. And I wonder about writings that are more, I'm thinking about particularly contemporary Nigerian writing and some sort of speculative writing, people like Nedia Korofon, the kind of imaginings of alternatives and the sort of uh, the mm. fantastic. Um, so I, I wonder about that pull between the reflections on what actually is there, the kind of malaise or the, or the problems of the nation, and also the, the writing to imagine alternatives and, and sort of where you see your writing on that spectrum. Well, I'm going to leave that to critics and consumers uh, to decide. Let's just say that for me, literature is just another instrument of social and human engagement, community engagement. Literature is also sometimes an act of frustration that you cannot affect in other ways, in the ways in which you would like to. The way, the way in which I really would like to tackle humanity right now, my immediate humanity, my immediate constituency, uh, would probably have me at the Hague for crimes against humanity. 
So literature is also an expression of frustration of being unable to treat your humanity sometimes the way they really deserve. But it's also a program. It's uh, an expression of hope, the fact that one can still put pen to paper and even express the impossible is an act of optimism. So uh, let's not let's not be too romantic about literature. At the same time, let's not underestimate the power of literature. And can I give a quick example? Do we have enough time? All right. I speak about land of happiness, and I I wrote about the the culture of celebration of Nigerians, especially when there's nothing to celebrate, when in fact we should be in mourning. Now, when I wrote this book, the first, the preliminary uh, publication was, you know, the Nigerian edition, and I actually worked very closely with my publisher and frenetically, because I said to him, I want this work to be published on the day of the Nigerian 60th anniversary of independence. I said, this is my response to any thinking of a celebrative mode. And as if this was, uh, as if the book had been read, uh, because before the book came out, the government had announced a year's celebration. No, no, no. Almost simultaneously, sorry, my memory. Well, anyway, I'd written the book before the announcement was made, but the book had not been published by then. I'd written it because I knew what would come. So a whole year of celebration. So when the book came out, I said to myself, hmm, you know, you're something of a prophet. You know? <laughs> and I know for a fact that it's as a result of that book, of that coming of that action, that the celebration agenda was quietly shelved. I don't think beyond the usual parades and uh, an award of some honor here and there, I don't think anybody even smelt what was supposed to have been a year-long celebration. So you see, sometimes, just from time to time, we, the literateurs, can claim a tiny bit of victory. So it's made its mark already. I don't know if we've got time for one more question. I might just try and squeeze one more in. I think this is a question that lots of people have, and it's about um, form, and it's the fact that you've returned to novel writing after quite a, quite a period of time, obviously known as a, a playwright, also as a poet, and, and of course, you know, many other genres, but I think known more as, as a playwright. So I want, so the question asks why the return? And I also wonder if this is something to do with the fact that this has been weighing on your mind for so long. Was a play too brief to be able to express the kinds of things you wanted to express in all their complexities? What was it about the novel form that made, you know, that, that this story lent itself to? Well, I've answered the question several times. That is a good question. But the, the basic answer is to begin by recognizing the fact that I don't consider myself a novelist. I don't consider myself um, a fiction writer. The theater is my genre, and polemics, of course, and poetry, etc. All the themes in this uh, work have been addressed in various genres, including poetry. But so much loose ends, and loose ends which are becoming even gangrened, you know, been exposed to so much rot, they become gangrene. And so this 
what had been in my mind required a totally different discursive platform in which various characters can go different ways, be pulled back, something not so tightly structured as a play, as theater. I needed, uh, shall we say, quote-unquote, a cast of thousands. And that's why I found that I returned intuitively. I didn't even think about twice about it. I just knew that this had to be a novel. Thank you. I imagine that is a question that you get quite a lot. But thank you so much for talking to me, talking to us this evening. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you also to Intelligence Square for hosting this evening. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.